And I would have to say that, you know, five years ago, let's say, people were keeping their cards pretty close. No one wanted to talk. No one wanted to share. It was a very like, I'm going to get there in three years kind of thing. And so I don't I don't need you. Now, I see a much more mature industry now, which actually gives me a lot of hope. So even though on one hand, I'm saying it keeps me up at night with all these lessons learned that are readily available that people can learn from, I'm also kind of on the other side, mildly assured that there is good forward progress, that folks are having the right conversations amongst the companies and not just kind of, let's say, leaving it up to NHTSA or somebody else to solve. Hello, and welcome to the Atomicast. As 99% of the time, um, I'm your host, Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, the producer of Apex, the Secret Race Across America, and the special operate the director of special operations for Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show, but especially do not re- represent on this episode because of our guests, with whom I have a friendly relationship. I want to keep it that way. Uh, I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludacris, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, which I do represent on this show, I guess. What? And I am Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch and the person who gets to introduce our guest today, which is Nat Buse, VP of Safety at Aurora, a company that I've been following and writing about since the very, very beginning, um, back in the day when they were coming out of stealth mode. So Nat, thanks so much for joining us today on the Atonicast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This is really going to be a lot of fun, I hope. <laughs> so yeah, you hope. It just depends on Alex's mood. I'm in a good um, mood. Nat and I met. We're good. We're good. Okay, this- good. This is exactly why I use the word hope. We'll see how it goes, but I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm 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 heavily optimistic. How about that? I, look, so, I saw Nat speak years ago at, at Alan Kornhauser's conference at Princeton before predating his role at uh, at Aurora when he was still working for the government, which I'd like to talk about too. And he was great. I, I found and, you know I don't often say that about people, and I'm like, this guy's good. This guy's real. So I, I have a, a question to maybe. What was it? Wait, wait, wait. I just want to. I want to. I want to push Alex on this. What okay. was it that stood mm. out? Well, what was so great? I didn't say great. I'm saying this guy's good. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. <laughs> but, but listen, you know, you go. I've been going at, when I was a journalist. I went to a lot of conferences going about mobility and, and safety and, and autonomy. Going back to 2014, 15, and back then, I mean, think about the quality of public speakers today on that topic. Back then it was, you know, it wasn't what you wanted it to be. And uh, so I took the opportunity to go to any conference I could and just follow people, listen to them speak when I had the chance. And and that was one of the, the cool ones. He was like, he spoke honestly, had something to say. And I'm not saying that that's, that's not true of everybody out there in government, but yeah. that's all. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Okay. There, there's a question I, I would love to start us off with, if 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 possible, um, because it's something that I kind of like realized. I think when I was at Pave that that like safety is one of these words that, first of all, I mean, obviously, right? Anytime the word AV or autonomous or whatever gets mentioned, safety is 
coming up, right? Someone's going to mention safety at some point in that in that discussion, um, uh, in some sense. But but safety is also like I, I kind of you know AVs are a great opportunity to think about words, the words that we use and and what they actually mean. And I realize safety is one of those words that people throw around. And and by people, I mean myself here. I realized that I was using this word safety all the time. And I'd never really like even thought about what that word even means. Like what is, what the hell is safety, right? And especially when it comes to something like autonomous vehicles, this really complex new technology, what is safety in that context? Like even, even just generally, it's hard to really like think too consciously about what the word safety means. But then especially when you get into something like autonomous vehicles, it's like, well, what, what are we actually even talking about here? Um, and I know there's a lot of different ways to cut it or whatever, but, but, but Nat, I just, I kind of want to start there just because it's like big and, and kind of open and, and, and hopefully maybe it'll kind of provide some perspective on, on just how you think about what you do professionally, like at the most basic level. So, so is your what question, is, what, is safety? what is safety? Yes, Jeez. it is. Okay. So Ed, Let him answer. Asked, okay. We could have just asked, asked him that question. So what is safety? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I would say, uh, Ed, it's a great question. And it's actually one that uh, certainly as I've uh, continued my professional career has has matured over time. And, and maybe I take a step back and explain what I mean by that. So when I when I first got into this space, I was actually spending a lot of time uh, protecting people once they got in a crash, the, this idea that we call crashworthiness or, or biomechanics. And, and actually, at the time, I was coming in on the, the tail end of what had been a really difficult rulemaking, uh, and I should put rulemakings in plural, around airbags. Um, and so here I was trading basically comments uh, with uh, folks that are now generally considered sort of the, the gurus or the who's who of, of, of biomechanics at, at these car companies. And one of the things I learned in that whole process is what I had learned in school about what it, what it meant from to be like, quote unquote, safe was a lot different kind of in the real world once you had a product on, on, on the road. Meaning you, as an engineer, as a safety engineer, you, you do the best that you can. You try to understand what are all the ways that things can fail. And then sometimes things, things happen, you, you miss things, and that's where you need to have this kind of idea of, of continuous Im- improvement. So my, my, my first kind of foray into this was really around like, Wait a minute, you know, like the answer is not quote unquote in the back of the book. I just can't run to some TA and they say, like, you've you've achieved nirvana, this is safe. It's like, no, you actually can't do that at all. That's actually not how the real world works. And so, like, fast forward now to AVs, and you're right, this kind of brand new technology where it's even much different from where we've been in the past, where a lot of the technologies that we call safety technologies are things that we've developed because we were trying to solve a particular situation happening in motor vehicles. So I think of things like electronic stability control where, you know, we were trying to address runoff the road crashes and loss of control. Very powerful technology, by the way. Um, You look at something like seatbelts, right? Trying to keep people from going into steering columns and things like that. But when you look at AVs, it's actually slightly different. Um, The safety part of AVs is more around uh, two pieces. One is... How do you actually build it in a way that it, it is safe on public roads and doesn't create an unreasonable risk, right? That's just all about really good engineering. The other piece of it, though, is kind of what would society accept as sort of, okay, you've met some bar of, of good enough. And typically governments have, have set that, uh, you know, kind of typically through some, some rulemaking procedure or some, something like that. And so when I think about safety as it relates to, to AVs, 
it's really more in the context of have I really identified all the ways that this thing could could fail and have I appropriately mitigated those things and have I actually convinced myself that I that I did those things because there is no such thing as as kind of absolute safety right the, the, the if we really want to see the benefits of this technology which obviously we at Aurora and you know uh, Alex at, at Argo believe is that it can have huge benefits for a society and if we wait for perfection um, and perfection meaning nothing ever happens so we might as well just leave it in the garage then we will never see those benefits and so there is this sort of like constant pursuit of continuous improvement making it better making it better but why all the whole time sort of acknowledging that we, you know you have to do some good work up front you just can't put you know sort of a piece of crap on on, on the streets uh, I want to ask a follow-up to that that's this idea of perfection and the interesting thing about safety is it you think of safety in terms of protections and thinking about things through like physics and like how body moves through the air, like all the, all these, but actually um, there's this whole sociological piece of it, which is what will we accept? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are around just in general, autonomous vehicle technology, what kind of level of perfection or imperfection are is our society willing to accept um so for example if only a hundred people die in crashes every year as of versus forty five thousand a year if we launch avs will people accept that or will they seek zero because it's a robot not a human yeah kirsten that's a really really great question i think there's a lot of different industries that are kind of ant- asking that same question, whether that be kind of in medical devices or, you know, nuclear or other areas. And the way I think about it, it's actually not an absolute number. I think if you take a step back, and there's been a lot of work work on this, by the way, but if you take a step back, we, we as humans, generally speaking, and I'm going to make broad brush statements here, generally are super comfortable with our own risk-taking behavior, partly because we actually don't really fully understand, you know, and appreciate the risk that we're taking individually. This is why, you know, we have 43,000 Americans dying on our roads every year. And you, you, you hear outcry, but you only hear outcry from folks that are really um, either touched by it, you know, had some personal experience by it, or uh, they really want to make the world a better place because it's dispersed and it's a bunch of individual people versus, you know, when a plane crashes, or more recently, you have train derailments or you have something where a singular person or even a machine was responsible or in charge, let's say, uh, the public has a very visceral reaction to that um, in, a, in a very kind of un, unrealistic uh, way. You know, I, I remember uh, when I was back at uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and Unfortunately, we had a summer where we had kind of a rash of motor coach crashes. And in general, like motor coaches were generally a pretty safe form of, of, of travel. In fact, I think if you go back and look at the numbers historically, they were really low, like on the orders of like single digits. Meaning if we had those kind of numbers for regular passenger vehicle travel, we wouldn't be at 43,000. But we had these three crashes where there were, uh, you know, a number of fatalities. And again, pale in comparison to what we see in light vehicles. And there was this huge reaction uh, both from the Hill, from the public about, oh, my gosh, how could these motor coaches be unsafe and like let's go do some rulemaking to, to fix it. And I think that's 
that's what's at stake, right? And I think the lesson learned for me in all of that is one way around that with a, a new technology like automated vehicles is to actually be more transparent, to actually lean in on sharing more with the public on you know, what you're doing, why you think what you're doing is safe, uh, how you're thinking about the hard, difficult issues, you know, what what is your rationale for why you think that uh, in some cases you're able to pull the vehicle operator from the vehicle, in some cases you're not. It's not a panacea, but certainly it helps. I think the other thing that will help is that people actually experiencing the technology. And obviously we can't put every single person, you know, in the United States in a self-driving vehicle and say, okay, do you think it's safe now? But we have to find some way to make that connection. And that's one thing I think we as an industry are still grappling with is how do you get people the experience? Because you can have small scale deployments in like individual cities, but that doesn't answer the national question of people wanting to share the road with these vehicles, their families, their friends, uh, and actually really trusting that we as companies have done a good job putting those vehicles together, testing them, validating them, uh, et cetera. And so at least for us at Aurora, uh, you know, one of the things we've been leaning very heavily on is sharing as much as we can, but it's not just putting information out. It actually has to be un- understandable. And I think this is where, you know, it's still a work in progress, right? You know, you can, we, we put out our safety case, which is sort of our answer to why we think we're, we're, we're safe, but just doing that isn't sufficient. So there's more that we have to do and more that we need to do uh, in order to kind of not have it be a conversation about a particular number but it's more of a conversation around, hey, I really think you're doing everything you did or, wow, I mean, you really missed a spot over here and we really think you all need to address that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something we've, we've talked about a bit on this show, right, that, that you know, building public trust around this technology, part of it is, is being safe, right, is not having terrible accidents or hurting people or killing people, right? That's that's a big piece of it. But the other piece that I think is, is easier, it's, it's not as obvious, I think, it is that you need to be transparent about that, right? You need to build trust in that in that record that this is not something that you're manipulating somehow this is not something where you're selectively disclosing to create a certain perception that this is like a genuine thing and like that's a very di- i mean you just think about it from a communications perspective like there's not a lot of precedent for for that right where where that safety and 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 how you communicate about it are so intimately wrapped up in 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 what you do like i don't think safety engineers and correct me if I'm wrong about this, generally not very like public facing. Like you don't usually imagine as a safety engineer, you're oftentimes working towards a regulatory standard or something where you just like all your work can be behind the scenes. And and this is like a very different way, not just of like of, of a standard that's like less defined and harder to meet and hard to understand, but that, that there's this entire communications aspect to it. And and like you say, this is where the, the safety case comes in, right? Yeah, and it's exactly like like uh, Alex said too, right? Like you know, with my government hat on, it's it's kind of hard to talk about these things because you know you you represent such a broad impact on society uh, and the industry itself, right? So you know, the ability for the government to say talk about some of these things is is limited, particularly if they're in kind of a rule a rulemaking mode. But when I look at us as a company, you know, one of the things that we actually haven't touched on yet is this idea of of buttressing kind of the safety engineering piece. And so how do you do that? Well, one of the things that I've I've learned looking at other industries is you can't always rely on like, you know, processes and organizational uh, reporting change and all this kind of stuff to actually get 
safety, you actually need to have a deliberate system to do that. And the way that a lot of other, other industries have, have done this, uh, with the exception of maybe some pieces of the auto industry, is this idea of a safety management system. So more of a holistic approach where you not only do the good engineering, but then you also are making sure that the leadership understands the safety risks that are inherent in the company. Who's making those decisions? Do they even agree with those decisions? You know, that employees feel empowered to speak up. You know, there's all these things that you kind of put around that so that you have uh, an approach to safety that's not just about the ones and zeros, but it's also about, you know, the thousands of decisions that get made every day in all of these companies that those decisions are rooted in some form of safety. And when people feel like it's not, they have a venue to speak up and those issues get adjudicated uh, appropriately. And I think that's super, super important. Uh, and one of the things that I think I found very, very powerful uh, as I've looked across the, the industry, and I'm not just talking AV industry here specifically, I'm talking about you know even in certain trucking industries. I mean, in my previous career, I had a chance to interface a lot with uh, trucking industries that um, or trucking carriers that were carrying hazmat, and you know their approach to safety is completely different than the guy haul, hauling toilet paper, right? Like they have the best equipment, the best training, but they also have this sort of uh, magic sauce that's sometimes really hard to measure, where the employees feel like, yes, I am committed to this this company doing things in a safe way, and they act, actively contribute to uh, the safety aspects without fear of like oh, I'm going to get yelled at for doing this, or this is like not going to help us get to the whatever milestone people are shooting for. People actually see it as part of the journey to, to get there, and it's really powerful. Sorry, this is simplifying it a little bit, but it, it sounds like a, you know, a big piece of, cult, of safety is, is the culture of that company. Um, and not just creating a good culture, but having systems in place where like someone could actually act upon issue they might have. Right. But just even put a finer point on it, you you just can't like set it up and like think that it'll work. You actually have to nurture it. So it's almost like, I don't know, we're kind of midsummer here. Uh, so, you know, my garden is, you know, if I don't water my garden, uh, guess what? Like, you know, things don't produce as much, you know, I don't get as much yield out of the, out of, out of the plants. And that's exactly almost a very similar parallel to safety culture, right? So you put the seed in the company, but you have to nur- nurture it. You know, we just did some of this just last last month, the National Safety Month, but that continues. You know, so whether it's routine communications from me or, or my team out to the company, uh, whether it's we bringing in special speakers to talk about safety, like all of those things uh, help nurture that safety culture. So it, it continues to, to grow. It's like maybe the way I would say is like you're never really done. You're just always on a journey uh, kind of ensuring that things are, are healthy and robust and you continue to measure it. Uh, but you just can't sit back and like, it's not something that you check the box and say, well, I, I'm done with safety culture. Let me move on to the, to the next thing. Whenever I'm asked this question, I'm asked often, my mother asks, people ask about what safety means. And I'm always trying to explain that nothing in the life ever is hundred percent safe and safety is always a moving target. And so a healthy organization is moving in good faith as technology improves, to deploy technology, to keep that target moving always up and to the right. <laughs> and, so, and ever since I've been, I've been at Argo three and a half years, now everywhere I look, whether I hit elevators, <laughs> getting on a plane, <laughs> like, like the simplest stuff, like even like the way, because I have a three-year-old, the way a machine that delivers 
um, what grocery carts <laughs> that like spits them out at the supermarket or the, the, the luggage cart at the airport that you pay for that spits them out. Everywhere I look, I see like their safety went into like some part of the safety chain. There's like a food chain, but for safety. And then there's like one thing that, that somebody didn't think of or didn't maintain or fix. And so now my whole life is now, because I'm a little like nervous Nelly um, as I get older, is filled with looking for these flaws. You, now so I'm going to turn this back to you. I saw you speak when you still work for the government. And then you went to Uber, where you were the head of safety for self-driving. And then Uber uh, sold ATG to Aurora. So you have been, had a, an almost unique seat <laughs> from the government side to like the heart of one of the companies that was at the center of self-driving his, uh, safety history. So what do you see walking down the street that's not a top AV related that makes you worry? What do you see? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I see a lot of things. Uh, it's, it's one reason why I think I have more gray hair now than I did uh, before. And, and I think... At the heart of it, I guess what I see is sometimes companies not willing to learn from mistakes of the past. Even that point that you started out with, Alex, like, you know, there is no such such thing as like you you reach the end point and you're done. It's always this kind of continuous improvement kind of thing. And we should never, you know, be in a situation where we're saying we're not going to deploy a technology that's going to save some some lives because we got like a few more things to, to do in order to kind of reach some other like 10 to the minus whatever that may not even be feasible, right? Like there, there, there is this sort of idea of at some point uh, you actually are doing a disservice to society and a disservice to the, the you know, motoring public kind of in our space if you're not marching towards these, these safety goals. You know, I think, you know, we've had now three successive years of like incredible increases in traffic safety. I, it, it is appalling, actually. When I look at all the work I've done in my 20 years of government service, putting technologies into the fleet to, to save lives, you know, I actually had a former colleague, uh, and in fact, it was last week, uh, texting me, and he's like, he's like, Nat, I hope you're at least taking some solace that even though the numbers are this bad, they'd be much worse if, you know, you hadn't worked on those things that you worked on. And that actually felt, you know, nice to hear from someone on the on the outside who, you know, it's not with me every day and seeing what, what, what I'm doing in, in here. And I think the, the, the challenge we, we have is we get stuck in these moments where we, we, we have a, a view of the world that's actually inconsistent with, with reality. So I think a large number of Americans, for example, think that things are relatively safe, like nothing to worry about. But yet those of us that work in this field are like, are you kidding? Do you understand all these risks that are out there? And so to your point, like I see things that hey, like someone, so-and-so is doing this over here. Like, that's a really good safety idea. Let's bring that into the broader form. And so one of the things that I've worked really hard to do since coming out of government is actually working with groups like AVSC or SAE or IEEE to try to get more shared understandings amongst the AV companies on safety-related matters. And I would have to say that, you know, five years ago, let's say, people were keeping their cards pretty close. No one wanted to talk. No one wanted to share. It was a very, like... I'm going to get there in three years kind of thing. And so I don't, I don't need you. Now I see a much more mature industry now, which actually gives me a lot of hope 
when I look at the plethora of standards that have come out, for example, focused on all sorts of different aspects of safety, which means like that's companies talking to each other. Like that's the genesis of most regulations is some form of industry best practice or industry standard. And so that gives me some hope. So even though on one hand, I'm saying it keeps me up at night with all these lessons learned that are readily available that people can learn from. I'm also kind of on the other side, uh, kind of mildly assured that there is good forward progress, that folks are having the right conversations amongst the companies and not just kind of, let's say, leaving it up to NHTSA or somebody else to solve. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get back really quick to the, the role of culture really fast, because I think, you know, you and I had a really, uh, we participated in a really, I thought, interesting conversation at a panel at, at AUVSI earlier this year um, about insurance. And I think one of the things that came out of that conversation really helped clarify, like, like a lot of, a lot of this in a way that I think a lot of people could understand, which is that, right, like in the status quo, you have human drivers and, you know, you have to pass a driver's license test. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not the highest standard in the world. Maybe we could, we could have that, that bar be <laughs> higher. We done better. Yeah. For sure. You know, sure. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, that's, it's not that easy with AVs. Right. Like like and, and maybe you could talk a little to that about about why it's challenging to just create a driver's test, because I think that's something that people assume is just going to happen or could easily happen or whatever else. And so one of the things that was really interesting and, and, and obviously we're talking about slightly different things with regulation and, and insurance and, and, and our conversation was about insurance. And and what came out of that was the idea that, you know, instead of instead of insuring. Right. So, so you have to both test a human driver and then you have to insure them based on the data that you can you can you can get about them. And um and and with it with AVs, you know, it's very hard to do that with the technology to treat the technology as if it's a human. And so, in some ways, what you have to do as an insurer and potentially down the road, even as a, as a regulator and certainly as a, a member of the public, right, whose trust matters a lot in all this, you in some ways have to assess these organizations as if they're a human driver, right? Like like in some ways, that's what you're insuring. That's what you're testing and that's what you as 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 a member of the public are being asked to trust. And so I guess A, maybe if you could speak a little bit to to why that approach is necessary and why it's it, it, we don't just have like a simple driver's test yet and, and maybe some of the challenges around that. But then also like maybe how do members of the public, and I realize these are two big questions I'm dumping here. But My but God, also how Ed. do how do members of the public like know who to trust and who not to trust? What are some of the things that that they can and should be trying to look at it in order to be able to fill their role in all this. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like we need another whole hour to like di dissect those two questions, but ma that maybe I'll- lot, Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't maybe, have a lot of chance. I, I want to get answers to these. These are, these are the questions that keep me up at night. So I got, I got to ask. All right. Well, Ed, you can call me anytime. We can have all sorts of discussions if, if, if you want. But I, I think one, one, one thing I'll say is about the whole, can you come up with the test? Yes, you can come up with a test. That is not what the the block is. Uh, the mental block, at least in my mind, is is that test sufficient? And what the heck are you testing anyway? Right? Historically, all of our tests, uh, and when I say all of our tests, I'm really speaking about performance tests that are either buried in uh, best practices or standards or something like that. As I mentioned before, are really around. Hey, we had a we had a safety issue. And we were building a widget. And so we put the widget on a safety issue and voila, you know, we got some measure of effectiveness and, you know, we, we might save some people in the process or we might have mitigated the risk of that safety thing happening again. This is different where we're actually trying to replicate the driving task. 
Like, let that sink in for a minute. This is not about like, you know, if you were making a technology for, let's say, drunk drunk driving, you could argue AVs will help with drunk driving and they, and, and they will because, you know, the computer won't be drunk, et cetera. But how you build that is not the same as how you would build a technology if you were purely trying to solve drunk driving, if that makes sense. And so I think the issue about the, the, the a, a single test like that is we just haven't been very clear, any of us, about what we were trying to solve for with a test. If it's like, can the system see something? Well, yeah, you could come up with a vision test, but I'm sure Alex would tell you, you, you can't like – you can see to the moon doesn't mean you can drive for crap. So like, why is that a thing that you're going to do? Right. And so I think there's all these different pieces of it that, that actually matter. Um, and including some companies running around, you know, getting check boxes on like, Oh, I mean, you know, I meet, meet this standard or that standard or whatever. I mean, I think one of the things that um, is very clear is like, you can be highly assured of whatever, but you can be highly assured also to drive into a ditch. Right. And I, so I think all of these things are why it's complicated for, self-driving as a technology by itself. I think the other thing that complicates it is we get wrapped up into the whole, uh, what I'll call form factor. So what are you putting this self-driving system on? Is it a sidewalk delivery robot that's delivering groceries from Trader Joe's? Or is it, you know, an 80,000 pound class eight tractor trailer that's delivering goods? You know, we're working on, you know, tractor trailers and passenger cars. So those are different aspects of self-driving, but, you know, the way we built our safety case, we can do both, which is really important. But from a testing standpoint, how I think about our safety case and how our company thinks about our safety case with respect to those two different form factors, we'll call them, are different. In the tractor-trailer case, you know, I need to worry about jackknifing, do we have appropriate tests for that, et cetera, versus on the pass car side, you know, those, some of those issues aren't aren't there, but there's other issues, right? I got to worry about people in the vehicle. I got to worry about all these other things. And the evidence has to support that we actually have mitigated those, those things. And so you can see how saying I'm going to come up with a test and not being very specific gets, gets rather unwieldy. You mentioned about how does the public know who it can trust? I think right now that revolves a, a, almost exclusively around what companies are sharing. There is no other way for companies to, to, to do that. I mean, we can probably have a whole separate discussion around the usefulness or not usefulness of disengagements. I know Chris and I have talked about that in, in the past, but that's that doesn't give me any confidence that a company is actually safe. I'd rather see their their safety approach, why they believe in it, how are they living, you know, a robust safety culture, all these other pieces that I think speak to operating self-driving vehicles on the road it's just a lot different than, you know, 16-year-old getting a driver's license test and hoping they kind of mature in their driving behavior uh, over time uh, and having insurance kind of use all of its historical data to know how to, you know, consider somebody as risky or not or a particular vehicle classes, you know, more likely to be involved in this kind of crash or, or, or not. It just kind of breaks down when you talk about literally read not, you know, not redefining, but essentially a vehicle that's going to follow all the road rules and do whatever it needs to do. And then you have to worry about kind of either latent software issues or hardware issues, et cetera. It just becomes a much different uh, problem set. Kirsten, can I ask a question? You got you have a juicy one. No, no, go ahead. I have a couple questions, but go for all it. All right. Broken record flag about to go up. In 1863, too, Elisha Otis 
claims that he stood in front of a crowd with his safety elevator and demonstrated in front of a crowd, we don't know if it actually happened or not, that he cut the rope and his catch mechanism stopped the elevator from descending. This is the Otis safety narrative for over 100 years. And, um, you know, it has captured the popular imagination, although it's unclear whether the event occurred exactly as Elijah Otis or Otis described it. Um, but back then, we didn't have social media, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have all these things. So it, it's, I, I buy that in the 19th century, maybe even in the early 20th century, it was possible to have a single spectacular public demonstration of something and that that would ripple out over the years and gather force power and build trust, whether or not it was backed by fact. And yet today, if any AV company (laughs) rolled a vehicle out into a street and then had a bunch of people run in front of it and the vehicle stopped safely, that would probably not convince the majority of people, oh, it's safe. So what, what do you, would you care to speculate on the nature of culture itself? Um, and, and how culture has inverted um, interpretations of the same type of event. Yeah, it's a it's a really great observation, Alex. And I think there, there's actually similar observations in the motor vehicle space. You know, I, uh, I was told many stories about when seatbelts were first introduced, people were like, would not wear them. All sorts of reasons. Mess up their clothes, might strangle them if they were in a crowd. All these kind of weird things. And one of the countermeasures that they actually did was they built this thing called the convincer, I think it was called. And this thing would show up at county fairs and they would strap people in this thing <laughs> and put the seatbelt on and show how you could go flying down the sled and nothing would happen to you. Uh, you, sh- you should look that up. And, 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 and this goes back to my point earlier about, you know, we really can't do that with AVs. That's actually not scalable. We can't put everybody in a car or a truck and give them a ride and say, now aren't you convinced? But I do think there are things like, you know, what we what we recently just did where we showcased how how we're building our fault management system and like the fact that it can go to decided road. Think like there 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 are these things that I think you can demonstrate along the journey to pulling the VO that if interested members of the public are actually following it, it starts to make sense, starts to build some confidence, you know, starts to unpack like this big thing about what what is self-driving and how do you actually do it. But it only goes so far. And I think the real proof point will be when there are instances and how kind of the public reacts or how regulators react uh, to incidents. And I think this is where, and I think you've heard me say this before, even when I was in government, I think there needs to be a really strong partnership between industry and government to really start talking about these things in a much more deliberate way so that the public isn't kind of thrown off the balance when you know, when you start having a bunch of deployments and there's issues all over the place that it's seen as measured and, and appropriate as opposed to kind of the knee-jerk reaction of, you know, oh, a full stop here. We got a big, big, big problem. You know, I think one of the things we work very hard on is a lot of discussions and transparency with, with the regulators, not because we're trying to uh, pull the wool over their, their eyes. Uh, certainly, I've been on the other side of the chair when People have tried to do that to me. Um, that's not what we're doing. We're really trying to explain to them how our technology works, you know, our safety approach, why we actually believe it, and kind of what I would call measurable proof points along the way so they can ask those hard questions of us. Well, did you guys think of that or did you think of this? And if, if we haven't, yeah, we need to go back and think about that. Um, 
And they're one piece of it, right? I think we try to lump the public as sort of like everybody together. But I think how how you talk to state and federal regulators or how you talk to people on the Hill and explain things is a lot different and a lot different uh, material than how you would convince, you know, you mentioned your mother, my my parents. I get asked the same questions all the time too, right? Like we're all like, you know, people who get up in the morning, you know, and <laughs> do our thing. And, you know, I, I have to like find different ways to talk to my parents about the stuff that I work on because, you know, my dad was, you know, worked on medical devices and medical instruments. You know, he was doing all sorts of interesting stuff, which is way different than what, what I'm doing. But his understanding of like, hey, is that safe, son? Like, how are you actually thinking about safety? And like, I'm not convinced. <laughs> like, it's a good proof point for me. And I think this is why you can't wait until the end, right? Like, I think this is another thing, back to your earlier point around um, what keeps me up at night is like people waiting to the end that somehow they're going to have this magic proof point that they like unveil on society and say, see, I'm ready now. Like, I think that's flawed. I think you have to march everyone along a journey uh, and find ways to demonstrate measurably things that 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 you've done. Because like, I think the, uh, you cannot just leave it up to a vacuum. Um, I think this technology in particular is pretty unique in the sense that it's been uh, tested in the public view for probably now almost a decade. And we we owe it to that to really um, bring the public along the journey as we're getting ready to pull these uh, drivers from the vehicle. Kirsten, you got um, I, got, I got one. You got one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, how I'll can Kirsten not, 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 not have one? <laughs> yeah, I'll pick one of the ones that um, I've been waiting to ask. You, you mentioned a couple of things that all kind of come back to maybe your time at Uber, but you said that you you learn a lot about safety through actually how um, companies and governments respond to incidents. And Uber has probably, at least right now, to date, the most famous one, which is the fatal um, crash that happened in Tempe. I don't think you were there at the time. Maybe you were. But what, have, what has that, looking at that, like, what did you learn from that specific incident? And did the industry and Uber, in spite of some of its issues, respond correctly in your view? Yeah, so I was not there at the time. Um, showed up shortly thereafter. So I, I'll, I'll give you kind of two perspectives. So what, when my government reaction was uh, one of like, we need to really understand what what happened here, uh, and I was pretty sure that this piece that I've been talking around around safety culture and around um, really understanding operations. Um, might have been part of the challenge. But of course, you know, I was in D.C., you know, I've got 10,000 other fires going going on. And so, you know, our, and the NTSB, as you know, went out and was doing their investigation and, and, and whatnot. But it was a conscious decision on my part. So when I got to ATG and started talking to the safety team that was there and, and other people that were there, you know, one of the lessons I would say that came out of that was the very deep commitment to turn over every rock and understand what had happened. Um, this is a bit ancient history now, but, you know, not only did you have kind of two different federal agencies, you know, poking around, one in NHTSA and one in TSB, you know, ATG on their own actually went and hired 
uh, an outside party to come in and look and see what was going on. And then they also did their own internal review. And so there was a lot of lessons learned from that. And if we go back in time, you know, circa 2019, circa 2020, you know, ATG was starting to put out what was it finding? What was it learning about things that could be improved? And so since that time, what, what I've actually seen is whether the companies will say it or not uh, publicly, um, they've taken some of those, those learnings and uh, put them in their own companies. So things that Aurora has been talking about, for example, things like safety management systems and safety case frameworks. I now hear when I go talk or go visit other colleagues, people are talking about those same things now which is awesome. Um, I think the other thing that um, I would say is happening is there, there, there was sort of the, it's provided a good, a good use case for how certain decisions that are being made for how autonomy should be formed, how you really need to have kind of a process around that so that when there are safety questions or things that might be safety, could have a safety impact, there's actually a forum to, adjudicate those. So that was something that didn't really exist at, at, at ATG at, at the time of, of the crash. And I could go on and on and on, but I, I think those would be some of the things that I would say came out of that very uh, tragic event, uh, one that we should never really forget and always continue to, to learn from. And I think the other thing that really uh, came out of that event was at the time, if you go back and look, there were actually very few companies putting out VSSAs. Even though when I had worked on the guidance, that was one of the things we said people should do. Uh, and since then, you know, more companies, more companies have have put put some out. Some have even gone so far as to update their previous ones, which is which is awesome. I, for one, would like to see more of that. I think the VSSAs are an interesting tool uh, to one share safety learnings with the broader industry, but also to the point that Alex was raising earlier. Uh, you know, it's something. If it's done right, and this is kind of one of the rub as it gets viewed as like, oh, it's just a flashy marketing thing. But if it's actually done right, there's actually a fair amount of, you know, you can't go build an autonomy system based on what you learn in there. But you can certainly understand how a company is thinking about problems. And that's something that, again, most people, whether they be reporters or members of the public, can actually pick up and gain some insight into what a company is, is doing. And so those would be kind of when I think back circa 2018, uh, some of the things that, that, that come to mind. I, I know I've asked a lot of questions. I just have one more and then I promise I'll let Alex and Kirsten fi- finish this off. But, but my, my last question is cause, cause I, not like I, I, is it going to be a 15 minute question? No, no, it won't. It won't. One of the, <laughs> and, and I'm, gonna gonna <laughs> I'm not, I'm not asking you to comment on, on any other company here, but this is about the context of the space that, that you're working in and, and, and operating in. Cause I really want to believe that like, the AV industry is about co- competing for public trust. And I get it. And I think it's cool that, that, that it, it's not just hitting some government-defined minimum safety standards. It's, it's that you have to do as much as possible to, to earn the public trust, both in terms of being safe and in being transparent. I love that. My issue where, where I keep getting hung up is that I feel like the best-known company in the space has not put out a VSSA, has not put out a safety case, has taken more risk than anyone else, and I feel like they've only ever been rewarded for it. And, and I feel like, again, their, their public profile is just so much greater than anybody else in the space. And that feels like a, a market dysfunction, right? If you, if you talk about a, a trust, a market for trust, it feels like a market failure uh, to me. And I wonder, how does that context make you think about your work? Um, because I, 
I don't see how it, it doesn't play into it somehow. And, and by the way, you've been a good, good You're sport. You're talking about Tesla, right? Some tough questions. I didn't mention any companies. I, and and if, if if my description of the context of, of the space is wrong, Nat, please correct that. But like, that's how I see the situation. I'm curious if you see it the same way and, and sort of how you deal with that because – uh, it seems like a tough thing. And by the way, like I said, you, you're a very good sport. Some of these are some some tough questions. We really appreciate your 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 candor today. This no, no, this is this is really great. And um, I, I don't consider these tough questions at all. Honestly, I, I I see this as like four people having a conversation, really, who are a very knowledgeable in this space, and b just trying to figure crap out. So like, if if the four of us can't have a conversation about this stuff, I don't know who else can. I, you know, I I think. It, it matters. You know, there's there's uh, going back to, uh, you know, the question around what keeps me up at night. Uh, this question around everybody not playing by the same rules keeps me up at night, uh, honestly, because I think that there is a golden opportunity here to do something really awesome with this technology in a way that we've not been able to do with kind of traditional motor vehicles. Um, we don't have to start out on the adversarial foot with, you know, companies who I won't mention, uh, hiring investigators to follow public officials around and all this kind of crazy stuff. I'm sure you all can enlighten listeners around that story at a later podcast, but you know, we're not in that space right now. It's a much different environment. Companies across the board, traditional EMs, uh, most of the folks in the AV space, uh, I say most, um, really trying to do the right thing and share information. But there is still this hesitancy. There's still this fear like, oh, I can't tell that to you know so-and-so because they're going to like use it against me. And it's like, boy, if you really actually understood how things worked, you know, I call it in the building, uh, you would not have that point of view at all because in that building, in DOT, I'm talking about it specifically, there are a bunch of folks over there trying to like solve the issue from a different perspective. And the more that people are talking together, the better off there will be. But, you know, and to your point, like the problem is, or not the problem, but the challenge is that it requires everybody to kind of like put some cards on the table and be transparent with each other. And that requires courage. Uh, and it requires a little, about, a little bit of uh, what I would call uh, intestinal fortitude. And I think that for some players in this space, the playbook that they want to run is uh, hide the football. I think for other players in this space, uh, I think they say that's not the way we should do this. And I certainly put Aurora in the camp. I think Alex's company in the same camp of like, we're not going to be in the camp of like hide the football from the regulator because there's no benefit to doing that. Um, and it it matters when we have the situation now where there's all of these um, issues coming out, you know, whether it's a result of the SGO or uh, whatever, where now information is coming out about you know particular types of crashes that people might or might not have had. You know, there's all sorts of issues with the data. But beyond all that, it's like it starts to degrade the public trust and it starts to degrade the trust that the regulators uh, need to build with with all of these companies. And so I am in the camp of it is extremely harmful. Um, you've got to do a better job. And I'm not saying we're doing you know the best and we're kind of kings of the castle or some crazy nonsense like that. But the point is, is like. You cannot say you're in it for safety and you're in it for public trust. And then at the same time, you're sort of doing things that are super counter to that. They just it doesn't add up. Uh, quick, quick, quick follow up. Sorry. And then that's my last question. 
what you just described, and I would say that there is uh, just a very few companies that would fall into the, um, you know, protect everything at all costs and also maybe deploy things when they're not ready. Is that the biggest existential risk to like the entire AV industry or is it something else? I think it's something else, actually. I, I think probably the, the the biggest threat kind of facing the, the industry would be someone – it's not just someone deploying who's not ready, uh, but someone who's deploying is not ready and has, you know, one too many events and those things making it, you know, through the court system and kind of having a very dampening effect on, um, A, how much capital is available, B – um, what what you do with the technology from that standpoint on because in all things that I've seen, there's always kind of this very, uh, you know, visceral pendulum swing one way or, or the other, depending on how you, you, you look at that. And it, I don't necessarily view it as we would lose the technology forever, but I would view it as a real risk that we would lose the technology for some time. Um we, we definitely have to guard against that. I mean, I can think of, you know, maybe nobody remembers this, but, you know, very bad implementation of a supposed safety thing was the automatic seatbelt. If you remember those things, you know, if you had the car and that little seatbelt would come along the, the top, right? Like, yeah, I had that. Not, not well executed. Yeah, not, not, not well executed. Um, took a long time for people to recover from that one. Well, wait, wait a second. Now, what, what yeah. could have been done differently? It's how would what would a good execution of that same technology have looked like? Uh, one that wasn't so easy to misuse for one. I mean, ha- having looked at a number of those cases in the crash files, um, it was easy not to connect the lap belt in that in, in, in that kind of very real example. I think in this case, w- there's two things happening, right? You have two different technologies uh, at the same time, right? You've got kind of level two stuff. You've got what we're working on is self-driving, but everybody occasionally will lump those two things together and say it's all about automation and look, look at all these problems. So we definitely have to separate those those two things. Um, I think the other thing that's happening is one is very much like we'll be in pockets in the country, right? One is you know you might be able to get it on a on a vehicle if you can afford it, and again those are different experiences and different things. But wrapped up in all of that is Today, we sit in a situation where we have a need really for both, right? I, I would argue we actually need all the technologies on the table with the rash of fatalities and injuries that are, that are happening, that we shouldn't preclude anything. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we should take unnecessary risk that would sort of dampen the entire effort uh, and then lead us on a track with basically no solutions, only, only to rely basically on changing consumer behavior. And if the pandemic has taught us anything about changing consumer behavior, you know, short of a uh, pandemic of sorts, changing consumer behavior is, is really hard. Uh, and it takes a lot of effort and money. And technology definitely has a role to kind of support those changes in consumer behavior. And so we've, we've got to get this right. Uh, and it has to be kind of, kind of measured. And so, you know, what I would say, Kirsten, is like, it's not so much the fact that there's this one single event that will, you know, ruin it all because we've already had, you know, crashes and people have looked into those and, you know, decided that there was something to go after and fix or there was nothing. But it would be more the continued version of that and the continued sort of like not folks being transparent 
that would actually be the bigger thing, coupled with all the legal stuff on, on top of that, that I think is really what represents kind of the biggest threat to the industry. Mm-hmm. Alex, Alex you last up. question? Uh, I mean, the last two questions really covered pretty, I think pretty much mostly covered what I was going to ask. Uh, you know, I wrote a column a few months ago. Uh, so this isn't, uh, this is fair. Because the headline of the column was, don't throw uh, the autonomous baby out with the, the um, Tesla bathwater. And the basic, what I was getting at is, uh, it could be Tesla, but it could be anybody. The delta between the good actors and the bad actors in the sector, I think it's pretty big. And uh, when I attend a conference with anyone from the government, uh, my, my concern is that the actions of, one, of a suboptimal actor, um, as you pointed out, could could delay or drag down the, the concept behind the whole the whole uh, industry. Do you think there's been um, improvements uh, on the government side regarding understanding the difference between autonomy and driver assistance? I mean, do you think that there's that there's a risk that, that that regulators can't distinguish between the two at this point? No, not at all. No, not at all, Alex. I, I would say, at least speaking from my former team that I you know had the awesome responsibility to to lead. They, they very well understand the differences. I, I think what it is, is, you know, there's a lot of issues facing the agency all, all, all the time, right? And there's limited resources and limited bandwidth, et cetera. And I think the real issue comes down to kind of balancing all the tools that they have. Um, and I, I would say if taking a step back um, and looking at the last decade, let's say, I, I would say the approach from government has been very... Um, methodical. Other people might insert the word slow, but I'll put methodical um, and deliberate, right? They didn't wake up and say, oh my gosh, in 2013, you know, we need to write a rule tomorrow. This is, we can't have this stuff be out here without rules, right? Um, you know, there was this idea, let's, let's use some guidance to sort of provide in broad strokes, you know, what the industry should be, be, be looking at. And I think what we see now is just a kind of continuation of that that journey. So now what are we seeing, right? We're starting to see some rulemakings pop up, right? Folks are starting to say, okay, maybe now we understand, you know, how we might actually regulate this this technology. So let's start that that process. And again, for folks who, who don't know that might be listening, it's like, you know, a rulemaking can take a long time. This idea that you do rulemaking in 24 months or 12 months is kind of fantasy. It, you know, most of the rulemakings I worked on, you know, it took 10 to 12 years and it wasn't because I was a crappy rulemaking engineer. It's just how long, how long it takes. And, you know, so we got to, but we have to start the journey, right? So the question in my mind is what do you do in the interim? And I think what you do in the interim is you continue to put out guidance, you continue to use the enforcement stick and you continue to learn information. So to your point, you know, I think the SGO is probably providing lots of useful information for folks to ask, you know, interesting questions of, certain players in, in the space. Um, but I would say folks, folks sometimes discount, you know, sort of the knowledge that's in that, in, in that building, um, on all the floors in the building, you know, even federal motor carrier safety administration, you know, I had an opportunity to interact with a lot of those folks and, you know, there, there, there are some pretty smart people in, in those chairs. And I think it's, it's balancing sort of what's, What's needed right right now from a public risk standpoint, you know, public safety, health crisis, what what do you need to do on the vehicle side, all the, all those kind of different things. All but, right, I, but, so I, I, but 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 I will end on, 
at the same point, those folks aren't building autonomy in the basement. And so, you know, that re- requires this constant kind of dialogue with them so they understand. So the, my, my uh, departing uh, goodbye fun question is, what product or product category will you not use or allow your family to use because of what you learned about safety working for the government and in self-driving? <laughs> Would you like That's a moment pretty- to think about it? No, it's funny because I actually tell people all, all the time, I'm probably the riskiest safety person you, you you ever met, right? Like all the things that you, people would say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's a safety person that he, he does those things. Like I do, right? Well, like, okay, it's just, so what, do you eat uncooked puffer fish? <laughs> I Wait, suppose that, if, I had, that... had, if I had the experience to do it, I probably would. <laughs> okay, uh, would you ride an amusement park um, ride with your family that uh, has very low rating on Yelp. <laughs> that one, no, because it's all about it's all about uh, having risk mitigations in place, and so okay. you know, you know, no, no, knowing known hazards and then like doing mm. nothing about them is not 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 mm. my jam. <laughs> okay, so uh, all right, would you like to add to that list, or are we good? <laughs> <laughs> what a great great question, but no, it, it it is true, right? Like if I was really like a uh, you know, a paranoid safety person, I guess I would stay in my house wrapped in bubble wrap and never, never leave. And even then there's a risk the house would, might fall on me. So, you know, everything is about understanding the risk that you're taking and, you know, the mitigations in play. But in my job today, it really is more around really looking out kind of not only what's best for Aurora and the broader industry, but what's really best for society. And I just feel really passionate about getting this technology out there in a safe way and trying to bring as many colleagues along the way. So, so that you're not going to go vintage parachute skydive. <laughs> my son keeps trying to tell me. No, my 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 son keeps telling me like we should go parachuting, and I'm like, for what reason? He's like, I don't know. It'd be fun. So, you know, I'm, I might have to do it based on him, but I don't think I throw the word vintage in there. There's there's no yeah, reason to yeah, do that. No, no. Like like unicycle jousting sounds great. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody likes. That's it. right. That's right. right. The, the budget budget <laughs> uh, vintage parachuting. Yeah. That's right. Uh, That's well, right. Now this has been fantastic. Well, this conversation <laughs> went. This conversation <laughs> got a little bit derailed. So it's not derailed at all. It's not derailed. Nat opened by saying uh-huh. that people have sometimes. A, the, it's not a one-to-one relationship between real safety and perceived safety. It's Correct. not always one-to-one. And we're ending on that exact issue. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, coming and chatting with us about safety. There's a lot to cover there. And it's such a difficult and kind of very specific and yet somehow vague word that is thrown around so often. So it's always good to dig around into it. And unless Alex and Ed have some closing thought, I was just going to tell our audience, thanks for listening to another episode of the Atonicast. <laughs>